Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. On November 12th, longtime Bolivian President Evo Morales fled to Mexico. He did so amid protests against alleged election rigging and after being threatened by Bolivia's military and security services, leaving some to conclude that this was a coup. In his place, an interim and right-wing government has stepped up violent attacks against pro-Morales supporters. Several people have been killed by security services in protests that followed Morales' ouster. At the time of recording, the situation remained fluid, with some talks between pro-Maduro and anti-Maduro factions on potential new elections. But the prospect of more violence is very much a reality. On the line to help me understand the crisis in Bolivia is Ivan Briscoe, the Latin America director for the International Crisis Group. We kick off with a discussion of the unique place that Evo Morales holds in Latin American history as Bolivia's first indigenous president and as a broadly effective left-wing leader. We then have an in-depth discussion about the circumstances surrounding his ouster and what the international community can do, and in some cases can't do, to help bring about a peaceful resolution to this crisis. Like many episodes of this podcast, this episode discusses an ongoing global situation, global crisis, but does so in a way that is intended to give you the context you need to understand these events as they unfold in the coming days and and weeks and months. As always, please feel free to reach out to me if you have questions for me or if you have suggestions of topics you'd like me to cover or people you'd like me to interview. I always love hearing from you. You can use the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. And if you're with an organization that is looking to advertise to my audience, please do reach out to me as well. We have some advertising slots opening up uh, early in 2020. Speaking of ads, I am delighted to plug two great sponsors of this show. The first is the Masters in Peace and Justice program at the Joan B. Kroc School of Peace Studies at the University of San Diego. This program is designed for individuals seeking knowledge, skills, and practical experience to address a wide range of peace and social justice issues and includes hands-on field-based opportunities in Rwanda, Colombia, and Mexico. The program prepares students for careers in conflict resolution, human rights, social entrepreneurship, education, development, and advocacy. No GRE is required to apply and part-time options are available. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace to learn more. And this episode is brought to you by Northwestern University's online master's program in global health. You can learn how to make a meaningful difference in places where it is needed the most. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and click on the ad to learn more, or go to sps.northwestern.edu slash global. You can also reach out to me directly, and I'll put you in touch with the good folks at Northwestern and San Diego. Now, here is my conversation with Ivan Briscoe of the International Crisis Group. 
Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Evan Morales is a, is a fascinating uh, individual with, a, with a, an extraordinary history, really. He was born in extreme poverty. Uh, four of his uh, brothers and sisters died before uh, coming out of childhood. He is from an indigenous uh, family in an indigenous community. And he, um, and he became quite early on in his life a political actor, a grassroots political and social organizer in the coca growing communities of Bolivia. And this was what uh, marked his ascent into politics. So early in the millennium, around 2003 to 2005, there were a huge series of protests by the indigenous communities in the country against what they perceived to be rightly an exclusionary system of political rule by those who are descended from the, the Europeans. So what we might call the, the whites uh, community in, in Bolivia. Anyway, he was fundamental to this, to this mobilization. He, uh, and uh, following the, these years of, of, of plain crisis in the country, when the poverty levels were very high, discontent was very high, the old ruling elites were, were breaking up and falling apart. He won presidential elections in 2005 and thereby became the first ever indigenous ruler of Bolivia, which has an indigenous majority population. And he, and, he ran yeah. broadly as you know, a, a leftist. Is that fair to describe him? Uh, yeah, absolutely. He was part of the, the, the left-wing tide, which I suppose you could say began with Hugo Chavez at the end of 1998, picked up in Brazil and Argentina um, in 2002, 2003, and then reached Bolivia in 2005, with a slight difference in that Evo Morales was actually representing a fundamental political, even historical change in the country, as it were, handing over power to the indigenous majority, which had always been uh, somewhat... Uh, uh, subjugated to the, as I was saying, to the, the former elites. And so this change was one which maybe was more difficult to detect in the other countries run by left-wing rulers, which promised, again, re-foundations of their country, changes in the political system, more democracy, more equality, but at the end of the day, maybe didn't achieve so much in that regard. And unlike uh, those other examples, is it fair to say, though, that that Evo Morales, you know, ruled as you know, what we might call like a practical leftist? That you know, wealth wealth was redistributed and um, poverty sharply decreased, but you know, the bank books weren't broken, and um, in general, he was sort of 
you know, fiscally responsible. I think that's a, that's an absolutely fair interpretation of, of Evan Morales's years in power. You know, from the moment where there was really nearly an open conflict between um, his government with its indigenous support and the more business-minded communities of the lowlands in eastern Bolivia around Santa Cruz. Now, that happened in 2008. From the moment that was, as it were, resolved uh, until 2019, until now, until his resignation a few days ago, Bolivia had been a model of uh, fiscal responsibility, economic prudence, growth, um, you know, egalitarian uh, policies and social programs and inclusion of the indigenous. I mean, really, it was an extraordinary, has been an extraordinary achievement for what was 20 years ago, one of the poorest countries in Latin America. The vice president, Alvaro Garcia Linera, who's also in exile now with Evo Morales in, in Mexico, uh, said a few years ago uh, about the left in Latin America, he said it's not just that the left must govern uh, differently from the right, which is obviously uh, what happened in many countries, it must also govern better. Uh, and I think this is exactly what they try to achieve. And, and, and in recent years, Bolivia has been one of the fastest growing economies in the region, obviously helped by a boom in commodities, oil, gas, uh, very important, lithium production, uh, and of course, agricultural, agro-industrial production in the east, which has, you know, buoyed the economy, buoyed the, um, you know, foreign incomes from these activities. But at the same time, I mean, this has happened in other countries as well, but then followed the bust. And in Bolivia, there, there, there are economic problems at the moment. There's no doubt if you look at the, 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 the current account, the trade, there are some worries there. But generally speaking, they managed that. They, 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 they kept the ship afloat. Well, well, the, the busts seem to be uh, political. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, 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 so let's talk about uh, as you described that you know everything was was going pretty well, and then things sort of started to change after he won re-election in 2014, politically at least, right? Is it? And it was after that time that he sought what some might consider, you know, electoral shenanigans or constitutional shenanigans to try to lengthen his ability to uh, serve as president. I mean, you have to understand that Evan Morales' you know, winning coalition, which was in 2014, brought him over 60% of the vote in those elections. So I Thumping great landslide victory. That was composed not just of the indigenous grassroots. They wouldn't really be enough to, to give him the support he needs, the cocoa-growing communities, the mining communities, the, the indigenous people living in the Alta Plano, so the very high-altitude reaches of, of Bolivia. He also needed support from the broader urban middle classes, and he'd got it because he was running a stable, uh, growing economy which in which the benefits were available for almost everybody. But that started to fall apart, you're absolutely right, after that victory in 2014. And why? Well, you see it fundamentally in 2016. He presented a, a referendum on constitutional reform, which would allow him to uh, to stand for indefinite re-election, and he lost it. Uh, and this marked the moment in which the Bolivian electorate said, 
we respect your government, we have supported your government, but we don't want you to be a perpetual president in charge of the country because this smacks a little bit too much of Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, those sort of hard left authoritarian regimes or governments in the rest of Latin America, which we don't want Bolivia to become. And this this split, or rather this disaffection with Evo Morales, was not just of those middle classes or those whiter communities in the country. It also affected his indigenous support because there were lots of indigenous organizations which thought, well, why do we have to be ruled by the same person for over two decades, let's say? It's not something which they, they bought into at all. And therefore, you started to see the growing disaffection before these elections on the 20th of October. And it's quite clear it clear as far as it can be when you look at the results mm -hmm. when you look at the report on the elections from the organization of american states that evo morales still commanded a very substantial uh, support in the country probably over over 40 percent but not enough to swing things conclusively in his direction well, well, i i want i want to get to that to that point because i think that's critical for where we are now but just how did he, how was he able to stand for election even though he lost that referendum because then he took the matter to the law courts which were effectively ruled by the you know, people staffed by his his supporters and in december of last year he got a ruling from the supreme election tribunal authorizing him to stand again because he had a human right so because of his human rights, apparently, to, uh, to, to, to stand uh, as a candidate in the elections. So it basically, like, a, a court packed with his supporters um, enabled yes. him, found a legal justification for him to be able to run in elections in 2019, even after yes. this referendum um, concluded that he shouldn't be able to run. But he ran anyway, and that brings us to the October 20th elections. Yes. Can you describe what happened in those elections and how what happened on October 20th is brought us to the crisis where you are today. So can you like set the well, stage for that, those elections, please? Uh, uh, absolutely. I mean, his main opponent, there were other people in the field, but his main opponent was a well-known um, politician called Carlos Mesa, who'd been actually president and was deposed from office, thrown out of office in 2005 in the midst of the indigenous mobilization. Mesa is a moderate, and he was trying to group together all the discontent against, uh, against Evo Morales. The key point to remember in that first round was that for Evo Morales to win in the first round, uh, and without getting 50%, over 50% of the vote, he needed a 10-point difference with the second place candidate to claim outright first round victory if it had gone to a second round then it's likely looking at the political distribution of the candidates that all the other votes of all the other candidates who would have been excluded would have ended up in Messer's hands and he could easily have won so it was in his profound interest to secure that yes. 10 point gap and 10-point victory he, in the first round. That ten point, yeah. Now, this is where it gets pretty complicated because you have two counts in Bolivia. You have a preliminary count, which is based on photos of the voting tallies sent to the Supreme Electoral Tribunal, which are then rapidly counted up. 
and then the more formal, definitive count, which takes place over a few days. Now, the first count, just at the moment when it seemed that Messer and Morales were going to proceed to the second round, was suddenly stopped. And then 24 hours later, the count resumed and Evo Morales was suddenly had that 10-point advantage. Quite similarly, in the definitive count, which went on for a few days, it seemed that Mesa was only seven points behind Morales. And then when it came to the last 10% of votes counted, the tendency switched and Morales came out on top. That raised a lot of questions. It was actually quite similar uh, to what happened in Honduras in 2017. And of course, there was a demand for a full electoral audit. This, uh, the, the protests began across the country. The sense that Evo Morales had been you know, playing with the electoral count uh, caused really an eruption of protests across Bolivia. And that's where the Organization of American States were brought in with the full consent of Evo Morales to carry out the audit, which of course, uh, when they did report with their final report, uh, was a damning uh, portrayal of a series of abuses in the electoral system. So, so you, hours you, as yeah. sort of a, a disinterested observer, uh, conclude that these allegations of electoral manipulation are, are um, valid? There are a number of other... I, mean, I wouldn't rest entirely on a report... Uh, on by one organization on elections. That said, we're talking about election experts, over 30 election experts, which looked at various parts of the process. The main issue which they identified in their report is the existence of a ghost server, an internet server, uh, which was not under the control, it seems, of the election authorities, which was not tracked or supervised, which took over control of the count at the exact moment in which the blackout occurred on in the first electoral count. So there's an immediate suspicion that things were happening which could not be explained. Well, you know who could get to the bottom of this is probably Rudy Giuliani. Um, I'm sure that server is in Ukraine. Um, but no, it's, but, but the, the, the point you're making though is, is it is the, these allegations are credible. I mean, I mean, the vice president of the election authorities resigned before that report came out um, and, uh, and, you know, suggesting that there were uh, actions taking place which she did not agree with and which were not under her control. There are now uh, over 30, I believe, election officials who have been charged and arrested. And so no doubt over the course of time, we will find out exactly what happened. But if you look at the OAS report, I think you will find that there is a strong body of evidence to suggest these elections were not properly handled. And, and we say the OAS is the Organization of, of American States, um, the regional organization. Um, so, I mean, even if these uh, elections you know, were as flawed as 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 they seem to have been. Um, how do we get to the point where Evo Morales is now in Mexico and fled very quickly? Well, this I think this is the the the, the, the problem. Um, well, the, <laughs> the the fundamental problem with the elections, of course, is there was fraud, but at the same time, there's no doubt Evo Morales had a large body of support. Um, so that is the sort of initial immediate conditions in which Evo Morales was pushed out of power. Why? Because of the protests, 
followed uh, with a series of mutinies by the police and eventually, of course, the very well-known suggestion, as the word used, by the head of the armed forces that Evo Morales leave power in the name of social peace. And, of course, this has been understood by many uh, who oppose the, uh, you know, the, the decision uh, to, to get rid of or over Morales or his decision to, to resign as a, a coup. Um, and he has gone to Mexico with his vice president. They're in asylum. Uh, he has declared that he no longer wishes to be a candidate in the next elections. But this is not, um, this has not been a coup in the in, in in necessarily the conventional sense, in a sense, it was preceded, as I was mentioning, by these protests, uh, by rising levels of violence. And uh, but the point I think, which is the greatest concern for those looking at Bolivia now, is the sense that rather than prompting uh, the arrival of a caretaker government, which would just plan for new elections and reform the election authorities and, and create a level playing field so the whole process could be repeated again in two or three months, what really is the greatest concern at the moment is that instead of that, we have a government led by an interim president called Janine Agnes which seems in part to be set on a restoration of the traditional powers in Bolivia, the traditional rule. So it seems to be highly critical of the, 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 the empowerment of the indigenous community over the years of Evo Morales on one side, and on the other side seems disposed to use very high levels of violence by the police and the army to control protesters who are demanding a return to power of Evo Morales. And this is this is the situation which is giving rise to great concern. We've already seen two massacres carried out by the security forces of protesters, one against coca growers last at the end of last week, the other just days ago against uh, uh, indigenous protesters trying to blockade the gas plant, uh, which was uh, which is vital for the supply of gas to the capital, La Paz. And there's no certainty at the moment that we will not see more such acts of violence, uh, acts of coercive violence by the government in the coming days. There is a large protest of indigenous people from this community high up above the capital, La Paz, descending at the moment into, into La Paz with the coffins of eight people, protesters killed um, in the repression by the government two days ago. And, um, and there's no certainty as to what the re government's reaction is going to be to that. And so, so this interim government, as you said, is, has, has used violence to suppress protesters in, in those two massacres mm. that you just described. Mm. Has the interim government also sought to like implement you know, a right-wing economic agenda in the short time that it's been in power? I, I, there hasn't really been time for that. I mean, the, the interim president only took power on um, uh, just a little bit over a week ago. And they have 90 days to hold new elections. So I think that sort of the longer-term economic plan is, 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 is far more difficult to him. But, uh, you know, uh, uh, they have totally changed the leadership of the police and the armed forces. They have introduced uh, a, a discourse um, from the government 
based on the return of traditional Christian beliefs to the supreme political authorities, the return of the Bible to the presidential palace. It's important to bear in mind that Evo Morales' constitution made explicit that Bolivia was a secular state, a plurinational state, in which, which recognized the traditions and customs of the indigenous peoples, which of course are, um, you know, have their own religious creeds and beliefs in uh, which predate the arrival of Christianity. That's, that's interesting. I always wondered why at the United Nations, Bolivia was always introduced as the plurinational state of Bolivia as its <laughs> formal title. You've explained that to me. And and I think it's very important that the, the interior minister has made very explicit that he wishes to prosecute Evo Morales, that, there, that there's the possibility of taking uh, criminal charges against Evo Morales to the International Criminal Court. So, I mean, if you look at it in terms of the sort of the legal aspects and some of the political and, and, and discursive aspects of the new government, they really do represent a very sharp change from what uh, the government of the last 14 years. And there is really no real electoral or basis or other foundation, uh, legitimate foundation for such a radical change. And of course, this is producing a large amount of discontent. It's not all calling for the return of Evo Morales by any stretch. And I think it's important to bear in mind here that Evo Morales' party has explicitly discounted the return of Evo Morales. They want to go to the next elections. They want to fight them on a level playing field. And they want the chance with new candidates to return to power. And this is the debate, I think, which is crucial at the moment. What are the conditions for those next elections going to be? And what are the possibilities for the mass, the, the Evo Morales' party, to return to power. So so what are some of the opportunities uh, that elements of the international community, for example, can do mm. to deconflict this situation? Like, is there a proper and appropriate role for the OAS to play and for, say, the United States to play uh, in the coming weeks? This is one of the principal concerns in Bolivia and a reflection of the modern Latin American reality, which is marked by constant protests and instability and volatility in, in a number of countries. It's unfortunate that some of the big actors in the region, the traditional you know, diplomatic uh, protagonists who act as brokers and go-betweens in crises like this, are absent or are not trusted by both sides. The United States has made very clear in its statement that it regards the fall of Evo Morales as the start of the fall of other leaders in other countries in Latin America, particularly those in Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba. So it's seeing what's happening in Bolivia as part of its broader ideological project in the region. The government of Brazil is 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 a far right government again with a foreign minister set on reversing what he calls cultural marxism in the region which presumably would also include the government of evo morales the organization of american states as you mentioned again very much involved in the past in dealing with internal crises in countries and negotiating with the two sides in these disputes has made its its preference for um, an end to the Maduro government in, in Venezuela very clear and therefore has taken sides 
in in the dispute in other parts of Latin America and is simply not trusted as a neutral arbiter. And so it means that, in effect, the only options now for you know diplomatic engagement in Bolivia are of the United Nations and of European diplomats and the, the EU. And these are the, the actors who are deeply involved now talking with both sides in La Paz, trying to come to a, a solution regarding the conditions for the next elections. And let's hope very much that the violence over the last few days is a warning call to all sides that this, can, this situation cannot be allowed just to deteriorate further. And it's essential to come with an agreement, but it's being left in the hands of those who are not perhaps the big powers in the region, but are, are trusted above all for their independence more than anything else. So basically at this point, you're saying the UN and EU diplomats, um, though they don't hold a lot of sway in Bolivia or in the region, are, are you know trusted as as neutral arbiters or independent arbiters and and it's it's the UN and the EU diplomats sort of intention or desire to try to to do what like what 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 are they seeking um to reduce tensions well, ahead they, of of elections well let's i mean let's remember that the, what are the, the the basic criteria for for the government of this caretaker president Janine Añez in the absence of the president, uh, she was the next in line of succession. In the absence of the president, no, and various other people in the government uh, or, or allied with Morales who had resigned or, or, or left the country, she's the next in line. So, uh, the, the, but, but on the condition that she has only 90 days before calling new elections. So first and foremost, the elections have to be called within 90 days. They have to reform the electoral authorities, which have obviously been purged uh, as a result of the accusations of electoral fraud. I mentioned earlier the number of electoral electoral personnel who have been arrested, for example. Uh, they have to come up with some basic agreement as to exactly what this interim government can and can't do. And that would include, obviously, the exercising extreme restraint in uh, handling the protests by the supporters of Evo Morales. And then, of course, they have to agree on, well, what are, what are the conditions for the for the next election? Will it be a two-round election? Will all the former candidates who took part be allowed to take part? Will the mass candidate, the candidate from Evo Morales' party, be allowed to take part? So some of those basic understandings. And, of course, ideally, this agreement would include some guarantees as to what happens after the election. So if at the end of the day, the opposition to Evo Morales is victorious and gets its candidate installed, I think the, the mass would want to be sure that not everything is going to be reversed from those 14 years of Evo Morales' rule. Otherwise, the problem which Bolivia is facing now is just going to be pushed three months down the road and will flare up again. Because I don't think it's possible in Bolivia that these indigenous, the indigenous communities, which have been so, so benefited, not just economically, but in terms of political and social inclusion, recognition of who they are, uh, the, the giving of dignity in, in their lives, political recognition, all of those achievements of the Evo Morales' government could be reversed without a serious escalation of conflict in the country. Well, 
Ivan, thank you so much for your time. This was extremely helpful. It's been a pleasure. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Ivan. The, the last time we, we spoke was about uh, Venezuela. That was a very popular episode, so I'm sure this one will uh, get wide exposure as well. Speaking of which, uh, please do share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. Anyone you think might find this kind of analysis that, that the show brings to worldly issues useful. Uh, it helps me. You'll be helping your friends. I, I appreciate it. All right. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.